As you stand in body or spirit, we'll come before God's word and we'll do so very likely as Jesus and the disciples would have reciting what he called uh, the Shema and of course became the basis of the great commandment. Will you follow after me in Hebrew? We'll join together in English. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ahad. Hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. We have been thinking the last few weeks about what it is to be a community together in Christ. And so we want to continue that discussion by looking at John 17 verses 20 through 23. But I wanted to show you something real quick. I have one of these red letter Bibles where the words of Jesus are in red. Okay, folks, this is in red. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity, to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. We know Jesus prayed. We know that Jesus' prayer was so impressive that as the one thing his disciples asked him was, teach us to pray. We know that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed in such a way that apparently even uh, blood began to appear on his forehead. And so that is why it's particularly interesting to me to share with you what one scholar said this week. He said, Jesus' prayer in John 17 is the most spectacularly unanswered prayer in all the Bible. What was that prayer again? Jesus prayed for our unity and prayed that we would be one. And we know it's important not only because Jesus prayed for it, But it's important because it was about the last thing Jesus said with his disciples. This is on the night in which he's betrayed. This is the night he will go into the garden. He's with his disciples in the upper room. And and you know how it is. You have friends or uh, our family, children. Oftentimes you wait and you say to them the very most important thing you want to say before they leave the room. The thing you want them to remember. Drive carefully. Text me when you get there. Whatever the message is. The most important one is all often saved before the final parting. And so here's Jesus in this most important message. Be one. I'm praying for you to be one. Now, I'm curious about how that is uh, spectacular as an unanswered prayer. Is it because the prayer is so deep and so difficult and profound that that makes it spectacular? 
could be, or is it that it has been not answered in such spectacular ways that, that we as Christ followers have violated uh, in such spectacular ways uh, the intent of this prayer? Maybe that's what the scholar meant. Let's just look at our record briefly as followers of Christ. By the fourth century, the 300s, it, certain people were put to death as Christians by other Christians because they didn't hold appropriate Orthodox beliefs about Jesus or about the Holy Spirit or about God the Father. Fast forward several centuries in the Crusades, and Christians killed other Christians by the thousands in the Middle East simply because they didn't look European, because they didn't look like them. And then we'll go forward to 1618, the so-called 30 years war that took place in Central Europe and soon uh, got a lot of Europe involved. Over 30 years, 8 million people would die from violence, from battle, and then from famine and disease that spread because of this war that basically was started, you may know your history, between the Protestants and the Catholic followers of Jesus. And then, and then, even in our day, it is not unusual for uh, some Christians to uh, perhaps uh, bomb in the name of Christ somebody's uh, place of worship. There's still difficulty uh, around Northern Ireland, though that has certainly changed some over the years. Have we done spectacularly not very well? as Jesus' followers, but, but you might say, well, that's them, but it's, it's not us. We, we don't kill each other today. Well, perhaps we don't. But I would remind you in Jesus' day, one of the rabbinical interpretations of the Ten Commandments of thou shalt not kill was anytime you humiliated another person, embarrassed them, or taunted them in such a way that their face would become ashen or white, They said you had, in a sense, murdered their spirit. Does that ever happen in the churches today? Does it ever happen in our country? And you go, well, it doesn't happen here. It happens in Washington, D.C. You know, on Capitol Hill, they fight and argue about everything, the Republicans and the Democrats. And and they're the ones doing this. Well, last studies that I saw said that three quarters of people in America claim to be people of faith. If we have a problem getting along in this country with each other, friends, it's our problem because we are the people of faith. And have we done much better in the world? Do you know that since Jesus' prayer, his believers have divided and subdivided and divided and divided and divided again. There are now, uh, by most estimates, more than 33,000 different Christian denominations today. How's that for being one? It just seems to come with the territory. I remember seeing a cartoon, you may have seen it. They rescue a guy's on a desert island. And he's got like a little uh, sort of thatched hut he's built. And they said, is that your house? And he said, no, no, that's my church where I worship. And they said, oh, well, what's that other uh, thatched place over there? And he said, oh, that's the church I left. Wait, wait, it seems to be a part of us. One commentator on this, a, a New Testament professor from Yale, and now uh, has gone full-time into nonprofit uh, work, Alan Hilton, says that uh, what we have done, essentially, as Christians, is we've chosen orthodoxy over community. 
He said, we have privileged right thinking and right belief and right action over the command to love even those who don't think or act properly. How did we get here? How did we fail so spectacularly? Well, I don't know, except for some reason, we just don't seem to realize how important Jesus' commandment was. Think about it. Why is it so important that we get along with one another? The first thing is, it's real basic. We just need each other. We need each other to, uh, to progress and grow as Christians. We need each other to go forward in the faith. Think about it. If you're starting a, a diet or changing your lifestyle or you're going to quit smoking or making an adjustment, you need the support of your family and friends and community around you. Uh, the famous example of discipleship is sometimes discipleship is like climbing a mountain and you will generally go further and higher if you have people on a team with you. And so one of the things, it's important for our growth. And the apostle Paul in 1 12 said the body of Christ was like all these different members, arms or legs or eyes or hands or feet, uh, mouths that get together. They each are different, but together they do more than they can by themselves. Paul knew that we needed each other, even the people who were different from uh, from us and think differently or believe differently or practice uh, differently, we still need them in order to grow. You know, one of the, I think, heresies that churches teach is find a church that believes exactly what you believe and join them. How do we grow? If everybody in the room is an echo chamber, how do any of us hear the voice of the Holy Spirit? And if you're thinking, well, that's a conservative church or whatever, not necessarily. How many of you have seen Facebook posts that say, if your pastor didn't preach on this controversial issue this week, you should leave the church? You know, both sides. The assumption is we only need people who are just like us and everybody else. We don't need them. We don't want them. I think Paul knew better. But Jesus actually, though he wants us to grow, his reason he actually put in red letters there, we need to get along with one another. Who, and each other and people different who follow Christ because that is our witness to the power of God and the presence of God and God's love in the world. That is how they will know, Jesus said, that you love them, God, is by the way that we love each other. You've probably heard that saying, um, it's attributed to uh, Sheldon Van Auken, but it goes something like this. The best argument for Christianity is Christians. And the best argument against Christianity is Christians. There's that sense we, we represent that witness. In the uh, first couple centuries, the church grew under a, a dictatorship and grew under oppression, but they grew because of the presence of God uh, that people saw in the way that they loved each other. One of the most famous letters is written by a Roman governor back to his uncle, the emperor in Rome. And he says this about the, Christ, the Christians, see how they love each other. See how they love each other. It was their love that even tempted the governor, a Roman, to be interested in them. Another, uh, another time uh, in, that, in correspondence with his uncle, he said this, those impious Galileans, they considered them atheists because they didn't worship the Roman gods, take care not only of their own poor, they take care of our poor as well. 
The way they loved was a witness. I read this, uh, an account of a guy named Marcus in the third century. Marcus became a Christian, which was great. Marcus was an actor. That's what he did for a living. And that wasn't great because there was a feeling among Christians in that day that actor, becoming an actor was a lifestyle that was not conducive to practicing the faith. And it, at that day was considered that led to loose morals and and behavior that was inappropriate. So they told Marcus, if you're going to be a Christian, you can't be an actor. So he's like, well, I got to think of something else to do for a living. So apparently Marcus starts an acting school. And the church kind of, that his new body around him said, you know, that I, I, that was really a good try. But, you, you know, if it's not appropriate for you, why is it appropriate for others? You've got to find something else. Well, I don't know what else I can do. Well, while you find it, we will support you. And they gave him money and food on a regular basis. But eventually, Marcus fell under the spell of someone who convinced him to become an atheist. And Marcus adopted a a lifestyle that got him in trouble and ended him up in prison. Now, prison then isn't like prison today. No one brings you three meals a day and you've got a nice courtyard to exercise in or anything, you know. Uh, uh, Though prison today is not fun, please. I've never been there, don't want to. But nobody provides for you. you. Your families provide for you. That's it. There's nobody else. And so what the Christians did is the Christians came and provided for Marcus in prison. Even though he no longer believed what they believed, even though he didn't agree with their lifestyle anymore, they went and fed him twice a day, bandaged him up, cared for his needs. And so there's a Roman official in Marcus's territory who tells the story and says, it's the Christians who are contributing to loose morals in the world because they're supporting people like this. Why don't they make them behave right before they take care of them? Insisting on right behavior before love has always been a temptation. So for our witness, we get together. And what does that look like? I mean, does it mean we're all the same and we all have to agree the same? And the answer is no. No, we don't have to. We don't have to look the same. Because I want to point you to two people who were in the room that night when Jesus gave this speech. One of them's name is Simon, and he's a zealot. A zealot is a person, he's a disciple, but a zealot is a person who lives for the overthrow of Rome. And by knifing Roman soldiers, killing Roman collaborators, uh, that's how he helps uh, Israel to be free of Rome. And so one of the biggest of the collaborators with Romans were the tax collectors. And in the same room as Simon the Zealot is a guy named Matthew who's a tax collector. By all rights, Simon should take his dinner knife and put it in the throat of Matthew. You think Democrats and Republicans have differences? Friends, this is serious. This is life and death. But they don't. Why not? couple theories. One is, as has been said, they found a purpose that was higher than their differences. That purpose, I believe, was the kingdom of God and doing what Jesus called them to do. They were willing to put it aside. Alan Hilton, in his book, A House United, 
It talks about a church from Dallas that started doing significant ministry with children in deep poverty and need on the other side of the border in, in Mexico. And the church in Houston found out about it they, they, by, by social media. So they contacted the church in Dallas and said, can we help you on this project? And they said, sure, come on our next trip. The two churches joined together and they got even twice as much done for the children. But while they were down there, they realized there was a difference. You see, the church in Dallas was a very progressive, non-denominational church that was very affirming of LGBTQ persons. And the church in Houston was a conservative Southern Baptist church, not affirming of those people at all. But by the time they figured that out about each other, it was too late. They were making a difference in the world. So they kept at it. Can we get along with people who believe and act differently if we have a higher purpose? And the other thing is, I think that whatever our differences are, if Jesus is at the table with us, our differences don't seem as significant in his presence, do they? He was there. And somehow those differences didn't seem quite as important. I'm reminded of an old story. Stories about a monastery um, uh, a few centuries ago that's struggling. They used to have a lot of people come stay there and have retreats and actually would buy the products that they made there at the monastery. But after a while, people just didn't like the atmosphere at the monastery. They quit spending the night there. They quit buying the products and the monastery was in real trouble. Well, the brothers in the monastery got together and they said, you know, that, that enclave of Jews uh, down the hill has a really good reputation. You know, people in the community seem to like them. We need to go ask them for their advice. So they sent one of the brothers down there. One of the brothers uh, said to the leader uh, of the Jewish um, group that was there, you know, people really like you. Can you help us? Do you know what could fix our monastery? And he said, no. He said, I, re- I really don't. He said, but I would tell you what, I was praying this morning and I, God told me that in your monastery, the Messiah is living right now. I was told by the Spirit that the Messiah is among you. Now, I don't know what to do about that, but I just thought I'd tell you. Well, the brother went back up the hill to the monastery and said, the Messiah is among us. One of us is the Messiah. And so they began to treat each other in a completely different, different, honoring way. And the atmosphere spread not only in the monastery, it became obvious to people in the village and the word got out to travelers and soon there was a waiting list of people who wanted to stay there. People will believe in a God whose people love each other.